Ladies and gentlemen, good evening, and may I extend a very warm welcome to you uh, to this public lecture. Um, warm welcome both from the LSE and indeed from the joint organisers of this public lecture, which are the LSE uh, with the Foreign Policy Centre. My name is Dr Anne Lane, and I'm not employed by the LSE in fact, but I'm employed by the institution across the road here at King's College London. And it's my special pleasure this evening to welcome this evening's speaker, Lord Treesman, who is currently Parliamentary Undersecretary of State at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. By way of background, it would not be out of place for me to mention that Lord Treesman has extensive experience in the trade union movement as well as the business world and also um, as an academic. He's been a member of the Labour Party since he was just 16 and a lifelong trade unionist as well, serving the party as General Secretary between 2001 and 2003 and the union movement as General Secretary of the Association of University Teachers between 1993 and 2001. He has held a range of academic appointments and is currently visiting fellow in economics at Cambridge University, um, as well as being visiting fellow in government at this institution. His subject this evening is public diplomacy, steps to the future, which of course is forming part of his present portfolio, for, uh, portfolio at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. Uh, public diplomacy, as we know, is an area of diplomatic practice, very much a reflection of the current transformation that is going on of diplomatic practice and procedures right, by, right across the developing and uh, the developed world as well. As an area of, of uh, government strategies, it's touching on this debate about the merging of hard and soft power methods of operation. It touches also on this vexed question of choice and purpose in foreign policy, particularly where foreign policy is formed by interests as well as values. Um, so, Lord Treesman, if I may, uh, I'll to invite you warmly to address us this evening. Thank you. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, and your excellencies, I see a number of friends from uh, the London missions uh, here this evening. I want to thank you very much for coming this evening. And uh, I'd also like to thank you, Dr. Lane. Uh, Dr. Lane has a quite remarkable CV. He's one of the world's leading thinkers on the former Yugoslavia, and I'm very happy to say is now uh, working also on the development of uh, foreign policy. I very much look forward to, um, uh, to your work, Dr. Lane, over this next period as well. Uh, many of the faces in this room are the faces of people I recognize and know important partners in our work on public diplomacy and important partners as diplomats. And I look forward to our future cooperation uh, for, the, for the whole of the future. And others are new faces, and I welcome all of you, because tonight I want to set out how diplomacy, as the Foreign Office has conducted it for centuries, has changed in my view beyond recognition from the days of Palmerston and Lord Grey Anthony Eden, or even more recently, Lord Carrington. And I'm honored to be speaking here at the LSE tonight, and it's fitting. The LSE's motto is to know the causes of things, which captures the essence of the college's work. And it's an equally good starting point for an analysis of diplomacy. Diplomats are deliverers of influence. They want to be the cause of things, whether it is peace or trade or alliances or the protection of our nationals or simply greater understanding between countries and peoples as understanding 
is itself the foundation of agreement. Their successes, a delivering influence, determines whether the government can deliver our foreign policy objectives and ultimately a safe, just and prosperous world. And as Lord Carter, and I shall be referring to Pat Carter, the author of uh, a very important uh, document on public diplomacy for us, as Lord Carter observed, where influence was once the preserve of elites, diplomats meeting ministers in gilded ministries and the exchange of formal written notes, it is now diverse and dispersed. The influence of the mass market, the power of pressure groups, the media and the internet, among other things, has led us to rethink diplomacy and how we deliver influence where it will have the most impact. Where we once needed to convince a handful of people in order to serve our country's interests, we must now convince millions. We still talk to ministers and officials, opinion formers and experts, of course, that classic diplomacy continues. But alongside that, we now talk direct to the peoples of other countries in what we call public diplomacy. And as some of you may know, about 18 months ago, as I said, Patrick Carter published a report on the UK's public diplomacy work. It led to the formation of a public diplomacy board, and Chris Powell, who's the, uh, is the vice chair of that board, I'm delighted, is, is here this evening as well. Pat examined whether we are closely enough focused on how best to deliver influence to the mass market of global public opinion. Did we understand, to return to the motto of this institution, the causes of things? The logic of public diplomacy in the past went something like this. If foreigners have a warm feeling about Britain, they are more likely to feel similarly about our role in the world. So the effort pandered to the traditional, comfortable view of what the UK is. London red buses and post boxes, black cabs, shortbread, scotch whiskey, cream teas, Shakespeare. Over time, it developed to a more modern image of Britain as a dynamic and innovative society, full of talent, talent but actually the objective was still exactly the same. And what was the result? A study by Simon Anholt, who is another independent member of the Public Diplomacy Board, on how nations were perceived by others shows us that foreigners still tend to think of us and view us as being efficient, inventive, scientific, cold and unemotional. And it tells us nothing about whether Shakespeare lovers or admirers of Damien Hirst think our role in the world is valuable or credible. It tells us nothing at all about that. And so even with all of the resources I feel are at my disposal in the public diplomacy area, uh, the bright innovative partners from the media, from diplomacy, from the British Council, from Wilton Park, I know I cannot substantially change how the world views the United Kingdom. In the face of millions of channels of information that bombard the global public every day, we would simply be shouting in the wind in order to try and effect change that way. So what is it that we have changed? We have refocused our effort on talking about the issues that we care about directly with the people in the countries we are trying to influence. And we don't just explain our policy. That itself would not work either. We debate it. 
We encourage other people to debate it. We engage with people who may agree with us or they may passionately disagree with us. In short, we have moved away from the impossible and unmeasurable goal of trying to change how people think about the UK to engaging people in the defining issues of our times. And there are very many examples of this, and I just want to, if I may, look at three. The FCO does an enormous amount to counter the threat of terrorism. Yes, of course, we talk to other governments. We negotiate cooperation agreements. We provide support and expertise, ensure our law enforcement agencies can work together. Not my phone, I don't think. <laughs> Never can tell. But we also want to understand and change the causes of terrorism. So our embassies and high commissioners, commissions work with those groups who may be susceptible to the terrorists' narrative. We examine why terrorists are effective with some people, and we use our own messages to try to overcome the narrative of hate. A key part of that is to break down the false message that we are faced with a clash of civilizations, that in some sense Britain is an enemy of the Muslim world. We reject, and I personally completely reject, the notion of the clash of civilizations and defend vigorously the reality that British Muslims are integral to British society, are not and must not be marginalized. So the Foreign Office team does a number of things. It works, for example, with the, organization, the organizers of the Hajj. It provides medical support and other assistance to the 25,000 British pilgrims who undertake Hajj. We work, too, with community groups in the United Kingdom and overseas, with schools and madrasas, with those who share our vision and those who don't, because agreement and understanding is often hard won. In Afghanistan, our battle with the Taliban is as much one of ideas as it is one of arms. We want Afghans to be persuaded that the democratic process that they voted for in very, very large numbers is the best future for their country. The Taliban want a repressive and cruel society based, in my view, on a warped worldview and equally warped interpretation of Islam. In Afghanistan, the BBC Pashto service, part of the World Service, funded by the FCO but acting with complete editorial independence of the FCO, is a vital tool in that process and crucially reaches Helmand where our armed forces have to face Taliban fighters. Through public diplomacy, we hope to make their job easier by making it harder for the Taliban to find safe haven. Take climate change as an example. The pressure for action came from individuals across the planet changing their behavior and demanding that governments also change their behavior. We are working to maintain that pressure, influencing the debate. For example, one of our diplomatic posts is planning a competition on YouTube for a short film on climate change from the perspective of youth. They will then produce a DVD of the winning entries and circulate this to business leaders for whom the youth market is vitally important. Will it have an impact? I think it will. Last week, the Foreign Secretary led a debate in the Security Council in New York on climate security for the first time that the subject had been discussed in the Security Council. 
Our efforts and those of like-minded groups who also work directly with the public have created the pressure on governments to take the issue seriously. Classic and public diplomacy, in that case, working best together. And that brings me to another point. The new public diplomacy relies as much on alliances and cooperation as it does on classic diplomacy. But these alliances can no longer just be with governments. They're with pressure groups, they're with charities, businesses, human rights organizations, communities, religious groups, with the media, and countless others who want to achieve the same thing that we do. Make Poverty History brought together many disparate groups who shared a common goal and drew strength and created their ideas from their different backgrounds and their diverse supporters. The result was a broad-based global movement of incredible power and influence when you think on it. We shared many of those goals and we worked with them to get the commitment from the G8 during our presidency of the G8 in 2005. Of course, much of what we do will not involve Bono or world leaders or will not make on occasions any news but we're determined it should make a difference. And the other example is take our work on social rights and particularly an issue like forced marriage. In Pakistan, a 12-part radio drama was broadcast on the BBC World Service's Urdu service and relayed on Pakistani FM stations. It chronicled the life of an ordinary Pakistani family in an area with strong links to the United Kingdom. The storylines covered forced marriage, immigration, human rights, and drug trafficking. And it followed up with a public debate through the radio phone-in, through seminars and on the internet site. Or in Uganda and Ethiopia, where the British Council organized a project to look at diversity issues facing people and organizations in those countries. A cross-section of people, including the government's Minister of Gender, were invited to contribute research. Within three months of the publication of the resulting report, that report and the subsequent public debate, which was stimulated, have contributed to the adoption of Uganda's Equal Opportunities Act. It had changed public understanding and desire for change in that area. And where does this leave the other traditional tools of public diplomacy? Education exchanges, the arts and culture. Well, of course, we'll continue to operate those programs. The Chevening Scholarships offer access to the United Kingdom's universities for candidates from right across the globe, who we think will be among the important opinion leaders in their countries in future. And indeed, I suspect there may be some here tonight. We want them to get an understanding of Britain that they can take away with them and which may help us understand each other and work together in the future. The British Council still does vital work in education too. Its language schools also help ensure that we can communicate with other societies. Cultural diplomacy may at times be part of our public diplomacy effort. I can see that in some countries, when understanding and agreement can be elusive, Art, poetry, theatre, or indeed classical music played by great pianists can be our first language and open the door to greater understanding. 
Over the last year, we have carried out a number of public diplomacy laboratories, the public diplomacy labs, to help identify new ways to work, new ways of reaching the key audiences that excite and make sense to those audiences rather than things we've always done. I have to tell you that initially the instinct among all of us in the public diplomacy world and in the Foreign Office was to try small variants of the things that we've done before. Because, yes, it's difficult to break out of the comfort zone. But I want ideas that are different. I want them to be scary. I want them to be alarmingly new. So I've taken the position that if an idea in the public diplomacy area doesn't startle me, it's probably wrong. My default position is challenge. It's necessary to shake up this kaleidoscope so that it cannot settle back into the old picture. Just in case you feel that uh, all I'm describing is having got bored with the status quo, I hope that's not the case. How can I be? I work with people who are innovative, who are imaginative, who are great to work with, some in government, some outside government, but increasingly all looking for new ideas, new ways to establish peace and security across the world. Now, may I say to everyone here that Patrick Carter didn't cover all of this in his report, but what he did do was prompt us to think about change, and that is what we've done. We've created new machinery, and I've mentioned it, particularly the Public Diplomacy Board, and this in turn has led to new ideas and, crucially, to new synergies with partners and other organizations. And we are determined to find new ways of measuring whether we are having the impact that we intend to have. I don't personally believe that it's necessary for the United Kingdom to get credit for its role in raising consciousness or nudging a foreign government toward a new policy. What I want is to see the change take place, and I don't mind particularly if there are no bouquets, just that we've succeeded in moving the ideas central to our strategic perspective along. Because sometimes quiet diplomacy does work best, and we've probably gone through rather too long a period where there's been too little quiet diplomacy. At other times, our partners will and should play a more prominent role than we do because of the access they have and the ability they have to persuade others. What matters is getting the right result. It's not easy always to kick off the shackles of the old ways. After Pat Carter published his report, uh, as I said, I detected a good deal of caution. But I was confident that within a few months we would be working again as enthusiastic partners, the World Service, the uh, the uh, British Council, all of us, right in the middle of this period of reform, and that is what has proved to be true. Our long-term partners, particularly the BBC World Service and the British Council, remain central to the delivery of our new policies. Together, we want to reach out to new partners, because that is what it will take if we're to stay relevant, inventive, and innovative. And this evening... I'd like to hear your views both on our approach and on any of the detail. I'd like to know whether you have ideas that you want to share in the way that I feel that we have ideas now that we want to share. How should we sell, develop the ideas of tolerance and respect for women in a particular culture? How could we galvanize the Americans 
on the question of climate change. What is the best way to engage with the Islamic world? How does it differ in Saudi or Southampton? A good ambassador in this kind of process needs to listen carefully and to, to speak persuasively. And I think that this has to be our approach to all forms of diplomacy. And that is why I ask you to tell me what you think. I remember well that I, I learned from the Shakespearean text, I quote, they that thrive will take counsel of their friends. Uh, tonight, ladies and gentlemen, your excellencies, I'm here to take counsel. Thank you very much. indeed. Uh, there will now be um, a period for questions. Uh, I've just been asked to let you know that this event is being recorded and the results will be made available online and as a podcast which the NSE will be launching on its website uh, later in the term. There is, I'm afraid, only one microphone so a little bit of patience will be needed uh, in terms of waiting for that but uh, in order to facilitate the recording it would be useful if we could, we could all uh, use the microphones, please. Who would like to start the questioning? Just to say that this event is being, I'll stand up. Okay. Just to say that this event is being recorded, and the results of this evening's recording will be made available on a podcast, which the LSE will be launching on its website later uh, in the term. Um, we're going to use a microphone this evening. We've only had one microphone available, I'm afraid. So I'd be grateful if everyone will be patient uh, in waiting for it in order to ask their question. But we do need to do this in order uh, to be able to uh, record the proceedings. Uh, I'd like to invite questions now from the floor. We've been given a series of questions by Lord Treesman to address. Who would like to start the questioning? Thank you, Lord Treesman. Uh, my name is Esteban Davis. I'm a student here uh, at the LSE. Um, I wanted to ask you what you think is the future for, the, uh, for our common foreign and security policy in the EU, and what do you think would the involvement of Britain be in it? Did everybody receive that question clearly? Yes. Do you want to take several? Would you like to take several? Yes, yeah, in the front here. Edmundo Rutia, the ambassador of Guatemala. Um, you in this country are about to have a change in the leadership. Uh, I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about the prime minister, and we expect uh, a change in, in the leadership. And um, uh, what are your, your view in terms of the future changes in the foreign policy in this country, given that there will be another prime minister? Thank you. And the third one over here, perhaps. Right, thanks very much. Um, 
I'm a professional from Pakistan, and you earlier mentioned a few incidences in Pakistan and the Muslim world. So my question is, uh, you talked about the trust, the, the trust to be built for Britain in Commonwealth countries such as Pakistan. But I see, I see it, how you're planning to do it when you, for example, promote values in countries such as Pakistan, democracy, but then you carry on supporting the dictators and such as Musharraf. So my question is around that. Do you want to address that, please? Thanks. Thank you very much. We have three questions here. Let, let, me take, let me take the questions uh, in, in the order they were asked, if I may. Uh, the, the whole of the issue of future security policy in the EU is a, a, a huge issue, and so necessarily what I say is going to be a very brief uh, response. But uh, it does seem to me that there are now uh, a number of challenges which have arisen, which have indicated frailty in the uh, capacity of Europe to respond to security problems. What, what happened in, uh, um, in Bosnia-Herzegovina, what's happened in Kosovo, are examples of our uh, incapacity, if I can put it that way, to operate uh, as effectively as we should or as rapidly as we should, and I think that we had to, to learn the lessons of that. And I also think, uh, by the way, that um, it, uh, it certainly is true that um, NATO as another alternative means of, of, of working in security environments uh, still represents our best chance of doing it. It uh, isn't the case, for example, that NATO is any longer restricted to security issues within Europe, nor is it the, uh, nor is it the case that uh, people can act with, uh, without having the United States involved. Uh, I think that we need to bolster uh, European security, uh, and I want to do it, uh, or we would want to do it, let me put it that way, uh, in a way which doesn't involve a huge amount of duplication of effort between the various kinds of security apparatus. Uh, one of the things I do know is that um, military uh, leaders, uh, I don't mean leaders of states, I'll come back to the last question in a moment, but uh, those who lead our military forces are often uh, quite keen on seeing a m major expansion of them. Uh, I think that were it to be an expansion which simply duplicated, we'd be very unlikely to in increase or improve European security apparatus. Uh, on the uh, change of leadership, uh, His Excellency, the Ambassador from Guatemala has asked me to commit political suicide, so I shall, uh, I sh I shall do this very carefully, because uh, <laughs> you only get the chance to do this once. Um, I, I think that you will not see a huge amount of uh, change in our foreign policy as a result of the change of the leader. But what I do think we are seeing is a greater uh, emphasis on the development of soft policy methods. Uh, there is a problem, I think, and there has been a problem, uh, that too many people uh, see a lot of nails and believe the only thing that you need is a hammer. And I don't think that's, uh, that's served us as well as, uh, as, as it should. The reality is that we need uh, a variety of methods, and the reason that I emphasize public diplomacy is because if you take the view as I do, that the critical thing is to identify broad goals and to work with those and to get agreement about those, that is achieved by methods which uh, require a great deal more diplomatic effort as well as a great deal more innovation. And I've tried to emphasize the innovation part. Uh, I think that we will pursue the same goals, 
but we'll probably have greater variety in the way that we do it. The, the, the final question, I think, is a truly difficult question. Uh, the, the, the realities uh, at the moment in the world are that there are serious problems in dealing with uh, terrorism, and there's no doubt that almost all the governments who feel that they are threatened by terrorism are going to look for stable government uh, in countries where they think there may well be problems in the genesis of terrorism. And for those reasons, uh, I can see why there is great caution about what might happen were, for example, President Musharraf not to be on the scene. But having said that, there is a very big effort, particularly being made in the Commonwealth, to get a degree of normality and to try and make sure that leaders of Commonwealth countries are not uniformed soldiers. And that is a commitment which the Commonwealth has expressed on a number of occasions and for which it's working. Thank you. Uh, thank you for your presentation, Lord Trisman. I found it quite interesting, but I've got a question which uh, is really based on me listening to what you said and contrasting that with what appears to be happening on the ground. The diplomacy you described is more about persuasion and influencing, but more and more what one sees appears to be power play as opposed to diplomacy, if I may put it that way. And maybe to illustrate my point, it would appear from your definition of the basis being the protection of a particular nation's interests. I would have thought actually to influence people, you need to go and base yourself mentally on what that other body of people perceives as its own interests. And if they perceive you as if you were identifying with not what you think are their interests, but what they perceive to be their interests, you stand a much better chance of influencing them. Thank you. Can we take a second question? Just there to your right. Thank you. Thank you. Lord Truthman, Elizabeth Mystery from the Sunday Herald. Your mention of the motto of this school seems particularly pertinent to know the causes of things. I would like to know why your department has consistently refused to reveal the full rationale and financial workings behind HMG's decision not to go ahead with the initiative that the SCA proposed to give right of abode and full democracy to Ascension Island. Britain's only overseas territory where inhabitants have no right of abode and where they have to leave at the whim of the employer. I'd also like to know why Lord Treesman seems to be reluctant to divulge the full nature of his meetings with Caleb McGarry, George Bush's appointed regime change coordinator for Cuba, when Mr. McGarry has been far more forthcoming on these meetings. Thank you. Well, yeah, shall I just take those? Um, the first point. Uh, of course, the point I am making is absolutely about uh, persuasion and trying to influence people through persuasion. Uh, and I, I'd love to live in a world where that was all you needed to rely on, but I don't, and nor do you. And there are, I'm afraid, um, instances where the, uh, the interests of uh, world security demand that other options are available to us as well. I mean, I don't expect this evening you'll want me to rehearse uh, all of the examples where that is the case, but I believe that it is the case, and uh, they are regrettable when they happen, but they happen. And I'd also suggest that what constitutes the interests of a people and the interests of a government are themselves not always well aligned. 
if you were to wonder what the interests of the Zimbabwean people were tonight, or the interests of Robert Mugabe is tonight, I hope that most of us would conclude that the interests of the Zimbabwean people were more significant, and the steps that we need to take in diplomacy, and by what means are required, uh, are uh, appropriate in those circumstances. Uh, on the uh, second uh, set of questions, um, I, I know that I'm being asked uh, on Ascension Island a question which, uh, in asking it, you will know that I am not in a position to answer it because the issues are sub judice in front of the courts and I'm afraid I'm not able to deal with matters that are sub judice. It's very tempting to do so, but I can't do so and I won't. And on your second question, I've never met Mr. McGarry. I don't know whether he says he's met me, but I have never met him. I have never engaged in a dialogue with him, nor do we have the same view as the American administration has about engagement with Cuba. And uh, I think that it's one of those occasions, perhaps, this evening where we should lay some myths to rest. Could I just ask questioners to give their name, please, and affiliation uh, before they ask their question? Thank you. There's a question down the front here, please. Uh, hello, my name is Toby Glynn. I'm a master's student in uh, international history at the LSE. Uh, I'd just like to ask you, um, in Blair's uh, Chicago speech, he initiated a new f uh, foreign policy uh, doctrine, the Blair Doctrine, whereby uh, it was uh, enunciated that uh, it was okay to intervene in sovereign states on liberal humanitarian grounds away from the traditional British foreign policy based on British interests. Um, uh, with, the, with the debacle of Iraq and Blair's doctrine arguably ending in disaster, I'd just like you to talk about the evolution of public policy with this chair, change in foreign policy doctrine with the Blair doctrine and whether the disaster in Iraq is leading to a reversion of that and how public policy flows with that. Thank you. Could we have perhaps two more questions? Yes, one just there. Thank you. Hi, my name is Andrew Fnafstag. I'm a LC student. Um, I was going to ask a question about the um, the episode we had in the Shat al-Arab, uh, kidnapping of the 15 British sailors earlier. Uh, how can the UK and other countries who might conceivably find themselves in a similar situation deal with that, such events? And um, do you see that there's a possibility that we could become hostage to public diplomacy in a sense? Uh, yeah. Okay, go on. Okay. Yes, go on. No, that's it. Um, Robert Morland, I'm a former uh, member of the European Parliament and of the Economic and Social Committee of the EU. Uh, when I've um, been abroad and talked to governments and civil servants and foreign ministers, etc., one always gets the highest praise of, of the FCO and of its diplomats. But having said that, there are buts. And the two buts I normally get are, first of all, there is a tendency for the British always to think they know best. And the second one is that it's very much used to, you, you mentioned Palmerston, etc., but it's still a little bit, you know, behind doors, one-to-one, one-to-a-small-group diplomacy. It lacks a consciousness of, of, to some extent, the outside world, transparency, talking to the press, as highlighted by the what I consider to be the extraordinary vote of the United Kingdom in the Council of Ministers. Was it 
when it was outvoted um, 26 to 1 last June on making the Council of Ministers more transparent. Um, do not think more could be done, and more could be done to change this attitude. Thank you. Okay. Um, the question about the Blair Doctrine, uh, I don't think that we have uh, changed the view that was put in the speech in Chicago. Uh, there is now, I think, a, a widespread international understanding that the old sense that it was never proper to intervene in another sovereign country has been accepted as generally uh, untenable in the world community. The responsibility to protect, which became a part of the United Nations uh, overall doctrine in 2005, I believe has replaced that. The first expectation is that a sovereign government should protect its own people. But unfortunately, not all sovereign governments do protect their own people. And let me use an example. Uh, it's probably the obvious one, Darfur. The reality is that the United Nations has had to come to a conclusion about the kinds of presence that would be required to create peace, stability, and some sort of future for people who are being wiped out in large numbers. Now, people could, I suppose, take the view that uh, President al-Bashir has taken, that it is none of anybody else's business to interfere in the Sudan. But uh, I believe that uh, after Rwanda and some other examples, these are no longer options that will be accepted anywhere pretty much around the world. And that is not because there is a desire to interfere with people's sovereignty. And indeed, Sudan's a good case because the issue wasn't about sending in a force which would then take over the government or decapitate the government. It was a force which would complete the humanitarian job uh, under the, uh, the responsibility to protect. And as a world community, it's worth noting that almost nobody at the United Nations believed that was wrong. It was adopted on Kofi Annan's recommendation, and I believe is a very solid part of the international architecture now. So I think the answer to your question is that there are possibly unusual circumstances, too many circumstances if there's one, but there are unusual circumstances where the requirement on the international community can't take their sovereignty as the final word. Uh, on the uh, question about uh, how we dealt with the uh, release of the uh, British uh, sailors and marines uh, in the upper Persian Gulf. Well, there were intensive, uh, well, there were intensive uh, discussions. The word negotiation has been avoided because it uh, implies that some sort of deal which might be disreputable was done. And I can tell you at first hand, uh, no such deal was done. But of course, there were intensive discussions. And uh, I believe that uh, what they demonstrated was this. Firstly, that on occasions the international community, if it speaks together, can create enough pressure to persuade people to have the discussion that you need to have, and that is something for which I'm profoundly grateful, because the international community did a remarkable job in that sense, and it's, uh, it, it was of, of great importance. But secondly, that what you've got to do in those circumstances is have the thoroughgoing discussion, the uh, strong exchange of views, the attempt to understand each other's position that gives you insights into the way to get through it. Uh, and those were discussions which I, I'm very, I'm sure we'll analyze them in more detail and more publicly, but those were discussions uh, which I found it um, quite an experience to have, uh, have led in London. 
Uh, may I turn to uh, Robert Morgan's question? Uh, I thank him for the, uh, the, the <coughs> brief bit of praise. That's always welcome. Uh, I suspect there's some truth in what you said, that people around the world, it's part of what I said was one of the definitions, uh, in a way, one of the definitions of Britishness. It's probably true around the world that uh, people do form the view of us that we sometimes behave as though we know best. Uh, I hope that that is not a view that would necessarily persist, although it might be quite difficult to shake it. Uh, but the reason that I think we may be able to do so is because we now work not so much as people who've come along with a solution, but people who are keen to work in partnerships. And most of the agreements we make in the diplomatic world now are agreements about partnerships. And those do work. And they, uh, they involve learning as much as they do giving from uh, outside. They are absolutely reciprocal. A lot of it is done behind uh, closed doors. Uh, I think there are some interesting questions about whether too much is done behind closed doors, whether we can achieve greater transparency. Uh, I, I've, I've taken the view, certainly in the conduct of, uh, of my job, that if it's possible to describe in public what we're doing, we should try and do so. And there are some occasions when you can't do so. And uh, I shan't try to defend that. I just say that it is part of doing this kind of job. And there may even be occasions in the Council of Europe when, for example, people are uh, working out what a negotiating position is with the United States, for example, on trade issues, where until that decision has been made and those negotiations have started, there may well be uh, votes which uh, suggest that it should be more transparent, but there will be occasions when all uh, 27 of the nations will conclude actually uh, they need to do some of that work in private. Uh, I think it probably is a matter of definition when that moment um, of becoming more transparent uh, is, is clear. But my instinct is to try and be as open as, uh, as we can. There were some questions from the central block here. I think perhaps we could start with the gentleman in the light jacket. Thank you. My name's Michael Hutchinson. I'm an interested parent. I was interested, uh, Lord Treesman, that you've been a trade unionist for many, many years. You clearly, you clearly also care about people. You also, no doubt, fully believe in democracy. I found your presentation very, very interesting. But I don't think any number of new methods or new gimmicks will work unless you have the trust of people if there's no trust there, whether that be our foreign friends or our own people, and I mean people not just here in the UK, but throughout the Commonwealth in our overseas territories, these new changes within the FCO will not have the effect. I'm just back yesterday, yesterday from spending a week on Ascension Island. You said Ascension Island was... You didn't mention Ascension Island is where the BBC World Service, which I gather is central to your delivery of what you wish to achieve, is based. There's no democracy on Ascension. I regret to say I believe your government displays double standards. We pontificate about the importance of democracy in other areas of the world, but we do not allow it in our own backyard. I've spoken to many, many people in Ascension. You were saying the mark of a good ambassador is to listen. 
your own ambassador there, the administrator, does not listen to the people. I do believe that we should look after the people within the overseas territories if we're going to preach democracy to the rest of the world. Trust has broken down there and in many other overseas territories I won't mention. What are you going to do with respect to try and get the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to rebuild bridges, rebuild trust, so that our own people will trust you and your government, whoever the new leader is, will trust your policies. If our own people don't believe you, you can't expect uh, overseas and foreigners to believe you. Can I suggest, as a start, you listen to the people in the overseas territories, listen to their wishes, and may I suggest that you appoint, as the new governor of St. Helena, who also acts as governor of Ascension, and also a new administrator on Ascension, who will listen to the people, who has empathy for the people, and will, if necessary, fight their corner before final decisions are taken. So and the final you, yeah. point, we should look after our own before we look after the interests of another nation, America. Thank you very much, sir. I, if I could just ask for people to keep their questions as, and the comments as brief as possible, because we have a, a sea of hands here, people who would like to intervene. It's a very interesting discussion, but thank you very much. There's a question here in the front, the gentleman in the front, and then Excellency uh, in the second row, please. Um, my name is Keith Hindle from the School of Oriental and African Studies, where I teach diplomats and would-be diplomats. Uh, I first want to take you up on your sentence where you said, I want ideas, I want startling, scary ideas. Well, I'll give you one. Abolish the House of Lords. You'll have a great deal more credibility if you abolish the House of Lords and have an elected chamber instead. But to move to the, your new public diplomacy board, I think rhetoric ran away with you when you said, we've changed beyond recognition the way we do diplomacy. You said since Palmerston, yes, yes. But then you said since Carrington, well, it's only 20 years ago, for heaven's sake. I looked at the annual accounts of the Public Diplomacy Board, and in the last one for 2005, I think it is, you spent 1.7 million and you had 1.3 million in additional funds from outside, matching funds or something like that. So we have three or four million pounds being spent. Now this is absolute peanuts. You're not going to change anything at, uh, uh, beyond recognition with that sort of money. I, I would remind our audience that you do spend 160 or something like that million on the World Service, all of which I applaud especially as I used to report to the World Service. But, I mean, that is real money be, being very effective. But the, the new money so far, I can't believe, is effective. Mm -hmm. uh, and a third question, please. I'm sorry, I'm not a diplomat. I'm a journalist. I should be sitting there. Anyway, I've been directed here. Mm -hmm. So my question is an argumentative question because... Uh, my colleague, I'm a journalist from Pakistan, his name is Yaudin. And my colleague from my countrymate uh, from Pakistan has already asked this question, but I'm putting it in a different, uh, different words. 
see your soldiers, British soldiers are being killed in, in Afghanistan and in Iraq to protect and prom promote democracy. But when, when the question of Pakistan comes, you try to take, I mean, give the excuse of uh, uh, the reality of terror, uh, terror war, war on terror, and to be cautious and put the, uh, pass the buck on the Commonwealth. Why is it so? Um, I don't know that there's a, a huge amount that I'm going to say that will convince uh, Michael Hutchinson, but let me say this. Uh, I'm not going to comment on ascension. I've already said why I won't comment on ascension. But uh, I don't recognize the uh, proposition you make about the overseas territories as it happens. I'm also a minister for the overseas territories. And once a year we have a large conference of all of the overseas territories. It happens in October. Uh, and I do not recognize the, uh, the kind of tension or disagreements between the overseas territories and the government of the United Kingdom that you've described, and I, I, I can tell you why. Uh, firstly, they are evolving new constitutions which are very, for most people, and I, forgive me, this is probably going to sound like very obscure stuff. I, I, I don't mean it to, so I'll, I'll do it as briefly as I can. Um, for, for most of these governments, they are evolving new constitutions and we are agreeing to new constitutions. I've personally negotiated uh, two of them, Turks and Caicos and the British Virgin Islands. And in both cases, there have been big extensions of the rights and responsibilities they hold. And I'm very pleased about that. And I'm, pr I'm proud of the empowerment that locally elected politicians have achieved. And that will happen across all of the, certainly the larger of the overseas territories, which probably comes down to all but three if you take Pitcairn as well as being a small one. And uh, the one thing that I have said is that the United Kingdom remains responsible for the international relations and the adherence to international treaties for the overseas territories and for their security. I'm answerable in Parliament for that. I cannot give that to somebody else because the somebody else to whom I give it can't answer for it. And so we've got an understanding, which I think is a, a principled one and a rather robust one, in which everything where, all of those areas where I do not have to answer for, they've got. And the ones I do have to answer for, I've retained. And I've made the point to all of those uh, overseas territories that should they reach the conclusion that they would prefer complete independence, I can tell you, I'm no kind of colonialist. I mean, I come up through, um, through uh, the, the left in the United Kingdom where anti-colonialism was part of our political training, and any of them who want to have full independence will find that we will assist in any way we can along that trajectory. I have no difficulty with that whatsoever. So long as we are dealing with, uh, with territories that don't have full independence, then, of course, it is bound to be the case that I have to answer for the things I have to answer for. And there's where the balance lies. Uh, I, I don't think that we uh, work for America, incidentally. I don't think America needs us to look after them. I don't think America believes that it needs anybody to look after them. May I turn to um, Keith's point about the abolition of the House of Lords? Uh, it will either shock or please him to know that I voted for a 100% elected House. I voted against every other proposition. Uh, I don't know if that uh, uh, raises my standing in his eyes, but generally speaking, generally speaking, uh, I, I believe that you've got to have democratic institutions. I think if you don't have them, there's a real problem. I don't think we have resolved, incidentally, what the relationship would then be between the two houses, and knowing us, it would take us about 500 years. But anyway, that's, uh, that's only a minor point that you made. 
25% of the Foreign Office's budget goes to the, uh, the public uh, diplomacy partners. It's not a small spend. It's absolutely crucial. And I've tried to... No, ab absolutely. They deliver. They deliver. Well, what is new is that as, as members of the new, new public diplomacy board, not the one in 2005, the accounts for which you've read, but the one that's come in... Uh, Gosh, I think we started in 2006, Chris, didn't we? And, and we've been going a year. So you're going to have to wait for the accounts a bit. But, it, but all of the partners are integrated into the strategy that I have described. So all of the expenditure is expenditure that lies behind that strategy rather than the things that have been done in the past. And uh, uh, what, what I would prefer is that the partners do absorb the bulk of the expenditure because I'd really rather... I hope I'm not going to upset any of my colleagues who are civil servants here this evening, but I'd rather it wasn't spent on civil servants for the most part in uh, Whitehall. I'd rather it was in the active, live public diplomacy partners. That's where the bulk of the action is. And may I say that within that, because uh, you mentioned approximately three million pounds of expenditure, it would have been worth mentioning something like 43 million pounds of expenditure on achievement. That's without some of the other people who put contributions in. Something in the order of, I think it's about, uh, forgive me, I might get the figure slightly wrong, but it, it, this is a bit that's only recently come toward me. The Marshall Scholarships, which I think are with the United States, which are around another three million on, on top of that. And, and so I just do, do make the general point. If you look at the World Service, you look at the British Council, you look at the expenditure on, uh, on, on uh, student scholarships, uh, the fellowships under the Achievement Scheme, if you look at the expenditures on... Wilton Park, then what you really do see is something like a quarter of our foreign office expenditure absolutely in the area of the new public diplomacy. And that is, of course, why it's so important to get it right. Uh, you've got to give an account to the public of that amount of expenditure. On the question of um, Pakistan, I don't know that there is a lot that I can add to my first answer. Uh, what I would say is that... Um, the Commonwealth, I think, is very, very clear that it wants to see solid progress to the most democratic forms that it can have in any country in the Commonwealth. Uh, where there's a military takeover, generally speaking, there is an attempt to put it right, and if it isn't put right, the option for suspension from the Commonwealth is an option that comes along. Uh, the, there, there has been a really serious, and in my view, a very good dialogue between the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, Don McKinnon, uh, and President Musharraf. And it is my hope, uh, I can't tell you whether it will be realised instantly, but it is my hope that we will get to a position where Commonwealth heads of state do not, in any instance, wear a uniform. That has to be our objective. We want a separation out of military from political institutions. And I think there are colleagues in this room as countries have gone through periods where the military have ruled, and it's taken a long time to get over that and get past it. But it's been essential to get that period behind. I think that's a fair thing to say. Do we have some questions from the side of the room? Yes, please. Uh, the lady on the end of the row, followed by the gentleman in, in the middle there, please. Sophie Milgrim, I'm a student at LSE. Um, I was just wondering if you could comment a little bit more on what you would view as a measurement, sorry, on how you would measure the effectiveness of public diplomacy strategy. Um, you mentioned kind of changes in policy in countries that you engage with, but I wonder what else you might uh, point to. 
Um, yeah, sorry, Philip Fistigaver, um, I'm, I'm a researcher in this area. I'm interested in the shift that you've described between old-style public diplomacy, which is concerned with the, the positive projection uh, of the image of Britain and this, and this newer um, uh, emphasis on achieving consensus on big issues. How, how are you hoping to achieve that in future? And are you, for example, taking, um, uh, uh, well, not taking advice, but are you seeking to emulate, for example, the experience of Canada or Norway uh, in this field who, who themselves have sought to you know, seize upon big issues and, 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 and influence the debate globally? Thank you. Yes. Uh, thanks for giving the chance again. Uh, I'll support uh, what you said earlier about Britain intervening in Darfur, and I think it's a very good idea. But the problem that I see with this is that it is a selective intervention. So when Israel was bombing Lebanon, Tony Blair for a month or two months didn't say that this bombing to be stopped. And how would you feel if Iran to intervene in Iraq now or Pakistan to intervene in Israel-Palestinian situation now? Thank you. Uh, the, the first question on measuring effectiveness. Let me just start with uh, a very quick comment about the things which I do not think are useful measures, but which we've been measuring for a very long time. If you ask the uh, British Council, which is an excellent organization and does an extraordinary job, and, and, and so this is not a criticism of them, if you ask them, generally speaking, um, how do they measure what they were doing in the past, they will describe a number of events to you, and they will they, they will tell you that they will have counted the number of people who came along to those events and they will give you a, a kind of a, well, technically a semantic differential from, you know, strongly loved it to absolutely hated it. And they will measure the, the degree of approval of what it is that they've seen. Uh, well, uh, I don't think that's a very effective thing to do because if you invite a lot of people to come and see a new production of Macbeth, broadly speaking, the people who will come want to see a production of Macbeth. They'll find it... a readings of Wordsworth. I mean, they'll find it very enjoyable, and when they leave, they will mostly say they've enjoyed themselves. How much do you know, or what do they think about Britain as a result? Well, actually, the truth is you don't know anything at all. It is not an effective way of measuring what they're doing. But what I do think we can do is we can um, look at, and, and we've got um, some consultants who've been working on the, uh, on the techniques for doing this. What we can do is say, what are our this is not approval of Britain, but what, what is it we think we have done in, for example, moving countries where forced marriage is an issue along a legislative path where forced marriage has become illegal? Uh, how many of the members of the, uh, of the uh, political class have taken up the issue, raised questions, introduced legislation, argued for it? How many of the, uh, the representatives of the media have taken up that kind of issue and with what effect? What has been the quality and the nature of the debate. And so you can across a, a range of other things. The question that I'm asking, as you will all recognize, is can we begin to measure whether we are encouraging people to move along the line of doing things about the things we care about, about the priority issues that we care about. If at the end of it they say they think Britain's a rather better place, that's great. I mean, I, I'll never say that I would regret that, obviously not. But, the, but that, is, that is the critical thing. We're looking for new methods of measurement which demonstrate outcomes in terms of our priorities rather than um, measures of rather superficial opinion. Uh, on the consensus on the big issues, uh, 
It's a really interesting question. Of course, other countries, Canada and Norway are quite good examples, uh, are beginning to develop uh, strands which are, in some senses, similar. But when you talk to people in the public diplomacy world, and we, we've had uh, a couple of big discussions with our friends from uh, all around the world about what it is they're trying to do, they will still tell you that for the most part, what they're trying to do is create a better impression of their country. And I question whether that is a viable objective. And uh, interestingly, I think, and Norway's a very good example of this, when you look at what they're actually doing, I suspect it's not what they say they think they're doing. They're actually doing something which is rather more like the things I'm advocating this evening. Uh, of course we can learn from them, we should learn from them, and, uh, and what, what I detect is that the new debate that's opening up between countries that are saying, well, are we really doing things effectively, is uh, creating an exchange of ideas which hasn't happened for a very long time. If you just st step back a couple of years, and you said to people, five years, and you said to people, uh, what, uh, what do you count as being the bandwidth, if you like, of diplomacy or diplomatic action? Mostly they talk about government to government, about the uh, private work that gets done, the sorts of things that lack transparency, which I was being asked about. Uh, but now, I think there is a real change in the notion of reaching very many more people in order to influence outcomes about the issues that are of the most importance in the modern world. Uh, I'm glad to uh, answer the question about the intervention in Darfur. Uh, I do believe that uh, people have got to be consistent uh, in the international community. And uh, whilst I don't think anybody was initially going to observe a ceasefire on either side of the conflict in the Lebanon, uh, I myself have raised a number of questions and did right through it as did my colleague Kim Howard, about the, uh, whether the response uh, was proportionate. And, you know, I, I, I stand by what I said uh, during that period. But the, but the core of your question, uh, may I suggest, comes back to something which I ask you to think about, and it's this. In Darfur, as an example, there is a strong desire, particularly in the African Union and in the United Nations, to have a United Nations force that is principally African because people believe that would work best. It's not a matter of Britain intervening, whatever. They, that is the belief of the people who will have to hold the ring on this. But there are, as yet, relatively few offers from the predominantly Islamic world to take part in that peacekeeping operation. Were Pakistan to make an offer to do that to Ban Ki-moon, I think we would have a party in Southwark. So, so maybe we should. to ask questions, so please let me try and deal, deal with the point very briefly. Uh, one of the things I know about the, um, the nations in the region, 
uh, India, Pakistan, and Bangladesh, is that they've got an extraordinary record in uh, troop contributing in very difficult parts of the world, and the standards of the troops that are contributed to peacekeeping, to peacekeeping has been exemplary. I think there are a number of places where it would make a profound difference if that were to continue. Whether you feel that that is inhibited or not by the United Kingdom's attitude to various things, candidly I doubt it, because most of the places it is happening have been as a result of agreements which have been worldwide and have included, for example, Pakistan and the United Kingdom, India and the United Kingdom, as part of the wider community of nations. We could take two questions, perhaps, uh, just here on the left. Uh, Jacob Halpin from the British American Security Information Council. Um, the importance and the value of soft power and public diplomacy are being spoken about more and more at the moment. Um, but it's, it still seems to be the case that when it comes down to it, it's old-fashioned power politics, um, hard power that is the order of the day in shaping foreign policy. Um, and it would seem to me that the messages given out by acts of power politics, i.e. going to war, speak much louder than the more subtle approaches of soft power. Um, and so my question is, is there a risk that all of, all of Britain's best efforts to promote a positive image through public diplomacy are liable to be um, undermined by acts of, of hard power? Thank you. And perhaps the lady on your, le on your right. Thank you. Ethel Sullivan from University College Cork and also an intern at the British American Security Information Council. So it's probably not surprising that my question's about Northern Ireland. And how do you get diplomacy to work when there's a small, violent minority on both sides who, um, well, who are using violence and getting that onto the front page and getting that onto your TV screens? How does diplomacy work in that situation? two very difficult questions. The first one, uh, I certainly think it's true that we have been in a period where uh, although a great deal of diplomatic effort goes on, it uh, has kind of vanished below the noise of what you've described as hard power being deployed, the, the projection of power by nations that are capable of projecting power. Uh, I think that uh, trying to get that balance right and trying to rebalance things is a very, very big task for us now. So it, if that's the burden of your point, I'm, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, but it is also true, and I, you know, let, let me choose just two examples which are not the ones like Iraq, which would come up perhaps more often, where I think that we have been uh, right to try to combine both sorts of power in order to get a result. My first example is Sierra Leone. Uh, the second is uh, Kosovo. Uh, in, the, in both cases, actually, but particularly in Sierra Leone, uh, we were told very widely that uh, were the United Kingdom to have troops in the area, it would be an absolute disaster, that it was impossible to get stability, that the uh, battles with the warlords, not least Charles Taylor, would descend into a, a further nightmare of carnage. Uh, we took the view that... Uh, unless somebody in the Manor River uh, Delta and uh, that region tried to stop the, uh, the wars that were going on there, the prospects of ever getting a civil society capable of standing on its own feet were negligible. And so I think that what we did was both.
and indeed the reconstruction of Kosovo now, and I'm hoping that the United Nations will take the right decisions on the independence, or some version of the independence of Kosovo, will again be an example of stabilization by the projection of hard power difficulties that uh, will occur to everybody in the field, uh, together with proper diplomatic work done to secure the peace. The point is made about uh, whether we have uh, secured the peace uh, in Iraq uh, following the conflict in Iraq, and my judgment is probably not very different from other people's. It is plain that the peace has not been secured in that way. It seems to me to be self-evident that it's not true. On the question of Northern Ireland, um, Northern Ireland was, by world standards, probably a relatively small civil war, but it was a civil war and it went on for a long time. Uh, I've been trying to do some analysis of civil wars to understand what's involved in them. I think that there have been something around 65 since the end of the Second World War, and they have some characteristics which I believe we can describe to each other relatively easily. The first is they go on for a very long time, remarkably long compared with almost any other kind of conflict. The second is that in a tiny, well, not tiny, but a small proportion, it's probably seven or eight, they've been resolved by the parties agreeing to power sharing. And even then, that's sometimes broken down and we've had to go through a whole cycle to re-establish it. Almost all of them, in other words, have been resolved by one side winning or the other side losing. That, I'm afraid, tragically, is how most of them have been resolved. Now, in the case of Northern Ireland, uh, I think that it uh, finally occurred to the IRA that it was a war that was not going to be won, and that the means of trying to secure their principal objective of the United Ireland could not be achieved by those means. But potentially, and within the context of the European Union, they might make greater achievements, particularly for the Catholic populations in the north of Ireland, by other means. So they're faced by a choice, in other words, of whether you talk to try and resolve, because in the long term you think other things might happen that would be going along the route that you wanted to go along, or whether you continue to fight in circumstances where you cannot win. In the midst of all of that, forgive me for that background, but in the midst of all of that, uh, of course, behind the scenes, and often in ways that are necessarily private and certainly not transparent, people try and do a lot of work to persuade people that the moment to talk has actually arrived. And uh, sometimes that works. And from our point of view, uh, not only do I think that uh, we tried very hard, and I think it's to the credit, um, it was to the credit of John Major, not a politician with whom I ever had a great deal of agreement, and to the credit of Tony Blair, a politician with whom I've had a lot of agreement, that we did the work, and it's enormously to the credit of Bill Clinton that he did a lot of the work, because I think that that was critical in persuading people that there was more to be gained by peace than continuing to fight. I'm aware that time is going on. Perhaps if we could have two final questions. Uh, right at the back, please. Hi. Thank you, Lord Friesman. Ian Orr, I used to work in the Foreign Office, mainly dealing with China. I was very pleased with your emphasis on the importance of understanding the causes of things and that public diplomacy and diplomacy work best when people listen. What I'd be very interested in is what are, if you could give two examples of 
things that during your time in the Foreign Office, engaging in diplomacy, that you have learned from perhaps big countries like China, Russia, the United States, and also from very much smaller countries? Thank you. And the gentleman immediately behind you. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Lord. I'm Selmo from Shagosh. I know that you know this dossier about Diego Gosha. And I know that Britain is a champion of human rights. And what will be the future of those people being deported and lawfully from their native land? Thank you. Uh, right. Uh, on the first question, my first example, let me start with a smaller example, probably in the way at least it's viewed in global terms. Uh, uh, I think that we have spent uh, quite a long time in most of the international community misunderstanding the conflict uh, around the border between Ethiopia and Eritrea, misunderstanding the causes of it, misunderstanding what might resolve it. Uh, and I found, just as a personal experience, that listening very, very much harder to what uh, lay behind it, what some of the, not just geopolitical interests were, but what some of the economic interests were, the access, for example, of Ethiopia, which is a large country and potentially quite a prosperous country, to get to the sea, to get its products out through a deep water port, to understand what normalization across that border would mean to them, and to understand equally the border aspirations of the Eritreans uh, in, in international resolution of that. It's something which I think we would have, perhaps we, I would have blundered on a long time with had, had we not made very, very consistent efforts to go and spend a long time listening. Uh, in the case, in, in a much larger case, I think we are at the moment involved in uh, what is a very difficult listening exercise with the Russian Federation about its energy resources and what it regards as energy power. Now, it's, um, it would be easy to, uh, to say, well, you know, here we have a nation that was used in the Soviet Union guise anyway, uh, to very, very extensive power in the Cold War because of the nature of the balance of, uh, of destruction that was the possibility of the Cold War. And uh, then not to understand how that nation might see its current resources and its current power being exercised in different ways if it is not shown a sufficient degree of attention as we work through the problems that it is concerned with. And I just give you an example of such a problem, which we're working through. I'm promised this is not an example which is supposed to lead to a conclusion because it's a work in progress. Uh, not understanding how the Russians understand security in Georgia and what might be involved in the movement of Georgia into NATO and therefore a fundamental change in the, in the uh, borders of their, uh, of their, as they see it, security zone and security interest would be something which we will misunderstand unless we listen very carefully. That's a, a big example and one which I think will probably be uh, a big example for probably a, a while to come, but one which I think is important. I'm not sure I totally heard the last question, but um, let me just say uh, one thing about the, the whole of the work right around the world uh, on human rights. I mentioned the responsibility to protect earlier. 2005 was an extremely important year, I believe, for the United Nations for several reasons. 
some of them reasons of failure as well as some of them reasons for success. The reasons for failure, there was a serious plan, Kofi Annan advocated it, for very widespread reform of the whole of the machinery and the apparatus of the United Nations has more or less not happened. And I think that the United Nations actually hobbles along uh, and cannot do the kind of job that probably we would all want it to do as the arbiter of international relations. The form, the form the Security Council is in, who is on it, whether it reflects genuinely great interests around the world and so on, as well as the whole of the way the of the operation of the Secretariat and Finance and so on. But there were a number of things which were genuine successes. Uh, one of them was the decisions on, uh, in my view, on the responsibility to protect. But the second, which is allied to it, ought to be the development of the new Human Rights Council. Now, the world community has a new choice here. It can either have a Human Rights Council which does the work which is needed seriously to protect human rights around the world, and takes the decisions not only about who it should elect on to the Human Rights Council, but those nations which sometimes put themselves forward whose human rights record is appalling. It has to take decisions about that in terms of the credibility of the Human Rights Council, and it has to give the Human Rights Council teeth. It's not simply something that the United Kingdom advocates. I think if Ban Ki-moon was sitting here in front of you today, you would hear the same words. It is a requirement now that we make the new Human Rights Council work. And among the things it needs to do, in my view, is to project soft power and the persuasiveness that is needed to try and get people into good from bad positions. On occasions, as the question about uh, Chicago revealed, on occasions it will need to do more forceful things than that. But I'd like to think that we will be sufficiently persuasive not to have to do that very often, but to try and align people around a set of values which the international community has signed up for but seems painfully reluctant to deliver. I think on that note, perhaps that's the moment in which to conclude reluctantly because we've had a very interesting, stimulating evening. I would like on your behalf, on behalf of everybody in the room, to thank Lord Treesman very much for speaking to us this evening and indeed for giving us so much of his time for an open question and answer session. Thank you very much. <laughs>